I've learned from our urban legend days on Usenet that you don't feed the trolls. Of course they're going to go for as much revenue as they can. Of course they're going to try to dominate industries. That's how business works. That's how capitalism certainly uh, works. People go onto Facebook and think that is their friends' entire lives. The one thing, the one thing that is fundamental to any social network and its long-term survival is the trust of its users. I think also brands have to be very careful how they use celebs, endorsers or influencers. Are you seeking to broaden your horizons, to stay relevant and become future fit? Do you want to fuel your creativity and inspire innovation? Or are you simply looking to put the kapow back into your business? Then look no further. Join Carmen Murray, entrepreneur, innovator, and tech fundi with her big personality and presentation style as she interviews celebrities, alchemists, newsmakers, and business experts to discover the stories behind their success. The Carmen Murray Show will open your mind and help you turn knowledge into magic. Let knowledge be your superpower. And now, from Solid Gold Studios, here's your host, Carmen Murray. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Carmen Murray Show. Always thrilled to have you here. And thanks for tuning in. My assistant is with me today again, so I'm going to ask her to introduce herself. Alexa, introduce yourself. I'm Alexa. I can answer your questions, play music, tell jokes, and more. To learn more, just ask. Alexa, can you rap for us? Connect Sync Link, all the pieces of your life I get it done at the speed of Wi-Fi. I'm the player, the coach, the arena, and the game. If you want something done, you just gotta say my name. Okay, Alexa, tell us a joke. How do you know if you are a pirate? You just are. Enough of that. So, Alexa, we have a very special guest in the studio today. He is actually an award-winning IT journalist and the editor-in-chief of the Gadget magazine. So you must behave now. I'll allow you to introduce him to us. Are you ready? Alexa, who is Arthur Goldstuck? This might answer your question. Gold was written by Javed Akhtar, Rima Kagdi, and Rajesh Devraj. Alexa, stop. Did that You're embarrassing us. Arthur, a warm welcome. I'm super excited to have you in the studio today, and we are going to unpack the research that you shared with us at the Social Media Landscape Briefing um, for 2019 for marketers and brands to um, inform their strategies for the next year. And we are going to unpack, I love this, not the big five, but the big six, and discuss some of the hot issues um, that occurred this year. So thanks for joining us. Thanks, Carmen. Great to be on board. No, it's always a pleasure to have you. Um, you know, you are a celebrity in the business world. Everyone knows you as a newsmaker, media analyst, influencer, speaker. Wikipedia says apparently you've published 17 books. Is that correct? Wikipedia is a little slow in the uptake. It's 19 books. Oh! <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> Fake news. And, oh, sure, but yeah, I'm a leader in technology market research. 
but you're also the editor-in-chief for Gadget Magazine. So one thing I found fascinating in doing my research for, for this interview is that you were born and raised in a little town, Trompsburg. I hope I'm saying that right. A population of about, say, 6,000 people in the free state. Now, my parents stay in the free state, and I can tell you now that they are not tech wizards. So how did this all begin for you? What's, what's the journey, and how did you arrive to where you are today? Well, Tromsberg was this real dusty dorp, your classic dusty dorp, uh, with a tiny population, but it had one asset, and that was a public library. And my mother was a voracious reader, and I became a voracious reader. My dad was a science fiction fan, uh, despite being very untech savvy. In fact, uh, he had no technology at all except for a, a, a battery-operated calculator. But I have to say, <laughs> he was the first person in Tromsberg with a calculator. Oh, wow. And people used to go and have a look at him uh, operating <laughs> it, and they would try and make words with it. I won't repeat the words that I came up with. <laughs> but it turned out that even a, a basic battery-operated calculator could be quite rude. So <laughs> that uh, led me into the Tromsberg Public Library where there was one shelf of science fiction novels, about 80 or so. And before I was in high school, I'd read all of those. And it, had, it gave me a deep passion for technology and the future in particular. So the combination of of uh, the future, the combination of uh, the future of technology with that was really what enthused me about anything you could do with tech. So I've never been techie myself. If you open a computer and tell me to spot what's broken and fix it, I wouldn't even be able to identify what's uh, broken, and if it's very obviously cracked apart. <laughs> uh, but I have a deep sense of what one can do with computers, and mm -hmm. I think that was sparked by that original exposure, exposure to science fiction. When I began writing as a journalist, one of my early ambitions was to be a science fiction writer. And it still is my ambition wow. to be a science fiction writer. But um, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be an author from as early as I can remember. Reading was my passion, but writing was my ambition. So I became a journalist uh, straight out of school because to pay my way to university, I began writing freelance for various publications, in particular music magazines. So music journalism was one of my deep interests wow. and one of my early beats, and then writing about technology. Ironically, there were far more outlets to write about music than about technology because there was no such thing in those days as consumer technology, mm. and there were no consumer technology publications, certainly not in South Africa. But as a freelance journalist, I began looking for opportunities, gaps, ideas, angles that I mm. could pitch to editors. And I found that no one was writing about technology. So I remember quite clearly in, in the mid-80s when Halley's Comet was on its way to South Africa. Somewhere I picked up that computers were going to be used to track it for the first time. Wow. And I thought that's a great story. And I pitched it to the SAA in-flight magazine. And they liked the idea. And that was my first major feature published about technology in a mainstream publication. And that really started my passion for writing about tech. But first, I moved into music journalism. And in the, in the 90s, I was South African correspondent for Billboard magazine, 
the oh, Global Music Trade Wow. Magazine. My husband will be so jealous when he hears <laughs> this. And he's also a big Rolling Stone fan. Oh, cool. <laughs> my, my ambition was to write for Rolling Stone, in fact. Um, I only ever got to write for the South African edition of Rolling Stone. Amazing. I ended up ironically writing a technology feature every month for the local Rolling Stone. But uh, back then, writing about music and writing for Billboard was like a dream come true for me because I also had that passion for music and for rock music in, in particular. And um, it was the era when all the big artists were being brought to South Africa for the first time. And I covered that also for the Weekly Mail, what's now the Mail and Guardian, wow. because I was news editor of the Weekly Mail at the time. And there I helped to start something called PC Review, which is a computer supplement of the Weekly Mail with Erwin Manoyam, one of the co-editors of the newspaper. And we built that into the first real consumer technology publication in South Africa. And that's where I cut my teeth, writing about tech, writing about the Internet for the first time. And, in fact, by April 1994, that's a seminal date in my career, uh, we had got enough insights and enough angles on the Internet to be able to produce the first ever supplement or special section or special edition on the internet mm. in any publication in South Africa. Oh. And it was, a think about a 12-page section of PC Review, which was massive for that time. Absolutely. And I still hear people today saying that that's what actually woke them up to the internet. And that, in turn, led to me writing the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Internet. Which I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and that changed my career. Um, I was approached by a publisher in 1994 to write this uh, this book, a guide about the internet, based on the fact that one of my Urban Legends books, which were my first books, extensively used the internet. And in that PC review, I wrote an article entitled How the Internet Wrote My Book. And that was spotted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really early days. And How the Internet Wrote My Book was that I used something called news groups, which are like discussion forums, that was the social media of the time. As with today, it was a very scary place to venture into. And trolls used to roam around the, the news groups and they used to try to provoke fights and arguments. And trolls almost destroyed the news groups. But one of those news groups was an urban legends news group. And that's where I did most of my homework on the international versions of urban legends around elections mm. and wrote a book on the South African elections of 1994 on the urban legends and the psyche of the country at the time. But a massive part of it came from the internet and that international context. And a publisher saw this. Uh, in fact, first what happened was a journalist saw it, Greg Gordon of the Sunday Times at the time, spotted this article and did an interview with me about how the internet wrote my book. And then a publisher saw that and said, well, why don't you write a book about the internet? And I said, no, there's only about 20,000 people using the internet in South Africa. So wow. it's, it's, it'll, be, it'll have a small audience. <laughs> and he said, yeah, it'll start small, but we can update it every year and eventually it'll become something big. What neither of us realized was that by the end of 1995, the wave of interest in the internet was uh, reaching this massive peak. And the wave broke just about the time that the book appeared. So the launch, instead of being a little niche affair, was a massive event. It was the opening of the exclusive books in Eastgate. Jenny Chris Williams was the uh, 
MC for the <laughs> event and for the bookshop, for her and for myself. It was, was a major event from what was going to be this little niche interest uh, book. And the book sold out pretty quickly, went into another three editions and also went into a special edition that what was then MWeb sold with its starter kit. In those days, you needed a starter kit to go onto the internet. <laughs> they called it the big black box. And in the big black box, they placed a special edition of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Internet. And the combination of those, all of those elements resulted in selling more than 50,000 copies. Bear in mind that my urban legend books had all been bestsellers, but none of them had sold more than 10,000 copies. But I mean, if a bestseller, you need to sell 10,000 copies, In right? South Africa, 3,000 today is a bestseller. Back then, oh, 5,000 was regarded as bestseller. So the urban legend books were seen as mega bestsellers. incredible. I mean, Maddie Wiener, like, <laughs> I, think, I think her books is like, I think she told me it was like 100,000. Yeah, that's incredible. Like, I mean, I mean, but I mean, this is, but you, what fascinates me about this is the fact that you are an early adopter. It's clear. It's evident. You write about things before the wave really starts. You know, you're paddling into the ocean before you catch that wave. And, um, and I think the same thing happened with social media. Right. You were also, um, I mean, every year at the Marketing Mix conferences, there's this annual social media landscape briefing that you do and you spend this tremendous amount of time doing research on the social media landscape. And to my understanding, this is not something that started recently. You've been doing this for many, many years. And before people even, you know, were really into this whole social media thing, how has things changed from, from then to now? Well, firstly, this is my 10th year on Twitter. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And my 11th year on Facebook. So what I tried to do with Facebook in particular was as it became available in South Africa, I joined it. It wasn't available to South Africans before 2007. And in fact, globally, I think only in 2006 was it available outside of the uh, universities of America. It was launched in 2004, I think at Harvard. So it took two years to start going global and then three years to reach South Africa. And at the time, I remember someone saying to me, why are you going on Facebook? Why aren't you on MySpace? Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd looked at MySpace and it was ugly. It was tedious. It was difficult. I didn't Uh, like it. Yeah. So I actually signed up onto MySpace just to see what it's like, but I didn't uh, tell anyone or distribute my my contact details or ask anyone else to uh, connect with me on MySpace because I didn't see a point. But Facebook, I immediately saw the point. But this person who was tech savvy and was in social media and had been involved in blogging for some years didn't see Facebook. So I realized that people are seeing these social networks only from their own very limited perspective. Mm. But one actually has to look at it from a broad potential perspective, pretty much the way I looked at science fiction when I was reading it as a kid. I was looking at what this meant for the future and seeing this as the future, in fact. And Facebook, one could see, was a potential medium for connecting anyone from any uh, walk of life. So it started off amongst college kids, then went to high school kids, and then started filtering through the older age groups. But you could see from a very early uh, stage already that it had appeal as a way to connect with old friends. And that meant that it would keep attracting older and older 
uh, people. Mm. So it was an obvious one. Whereas MySpace had no trajectory. It was more like a chat room, for, uh, like a experience. In fact, it was mostly music um, acts that um, were able to create pages to which they could attract fans mm. and build a following through those pages. So it was a way for them to almost manage their own fan base. Mm. But um, it, it was completely limited for for social purposes, and I didn't see a trajectory for it. For all the others, I could. When Twitter arrived, I, I could see a very clear trajectory for uh, Twitter as well. And uh, what excited me about Twitter was every time I presented at an event and put my Twitter handle up on the screen, I would see a spike in following. And every time I wrote an article and had my Twitter handle at the bottom, I could see a spike in following. And there was no other social network that had that kind of dynamic mm. behind it. Obviously, today, YouTube and Instagram uh, in particular have a, a strong appeal in that sense. But uh, Twitter was was different. It also introduced the hashtag for the first time. So it had all these elements that made it a very effective communications medium and a broadcast medium as well, broadcasting to people who you connected with on this uh, particular platform. So I, I especially liked uh, Twitter. But I'd learned from our urban legend days on Usenet that you don't feed the trolls. That was one of the fundamental rules. Don't feed the trolls. When people try to provoke you, just step back. And occasionally in the early days I would respond, but mostly I would simply ignore the trolls. And the result is that my Twitter experience has been very different from most people who complain about Twitter and how toxic it is. For me, Twitter is not a toxic environment because I don't invite in the toxicity. Mm. It's what happens when you feed the trolls, i.e. respond to attacks. Or you land up in black Twitter. That's 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 troll central, in (laughs) fact, (laughs) if you get involved in the toxic uh, debates. You don't have to get involved in the toxic debates there either. Uh, The point of it is that you can define the environment for yourself. Essentially, that's what I've tried to do over the years in social media is define my own environment and not allow others to define it for me. So that brings brings us back to the measuring of the Twitter landscape. One, one of those kind of trolling environments was sizing of Twitter in particular. And we're now talking around 2010, 2011. I try to keep a kind of a handle on how many people were using each of the social networks. It was difficult if you, one wasn't conducting market research as such. Mm. And uh, you didn't have the tools available to you to plug into the social networks. But there were ways to estimate it. And I used very rough dipstick uh, measures to estimate the size. And I remember uh, one year, a gentleman, gentleman by the name of Mike Vronsky came to the fore with a company called Fuseware. And he did a very small report on social media in which he said that Twitter had, I think, 55,000 followers. And around that was early in the in that particular year, towards the end of the year or maybe even the following year, I did an estimate that said Twitter probably has about eighty thousand followers in South Africa. Bear in mind this is early days of Twitter, so yeah. I started getting attacks from people saying, <laughs> "How can you say it's eighty thousand when Fuseware said it's fifty five thousand? Oh my god! We're talking you know, <laughs> six months later in a very young uh, environment. Oh. Obviously, it's going to be higher." And at first I tried to explain to people, obviously it would have grown since then, and it's just an <laughs> estimate, and there isn't really a, a uh, argument between us. People are trying to make it out to be this huge fight about the social media statistics. And then I realized that uh, people want to have a fight. 
about it and I decided to stay out of the fight. Whenever it reached that yeah. kind of level, that volatile I just stepped level. back. Yes. If mm. there's someone simply wanting an explanation, I would explain it. But then I realized that myself and Mike need to actually chat. Mm. And uh, so we got together. He was also keen to meet with me. And we met over a cup of coffee at a place called the Odd Cafe. Yeah. In Greenside in Johannesburg. Oh, of course. Very, very odd place. Now, the irony, um, which I'll come back to is that the art cafe was started and run by the wife of Oresti Patricius, who ran Ornico. We'll come oh, back to that in a moment. Now I'm starting <laughs> to see how these dots are connecting. Okay. Continue. So we would meet there, but at our first meeting, we agreed we should actually join forces and jointly try to measure the size of not just Twitter, but all of social media in South Africa. And the following year, I think it was 2012, we uh, launched our first social media landscape report. And wow. that became the definitive study. And because the only two people who were supposedly arguing about the social media stats had now joined forces wow. and had a unified voice, there was nothing for the trolls to argue about. And there was nothing for people to dispute our numbers with. That was the key thing. People wanted to dispute all the time. Mm. And now suddenly there wasn't a basis for that dispute. And the result of that was that we got massive positive uh, feedback. And also very strong Twitter growth for uh, both of us. And this enabled us to expand our research expertise and reach into social media. And it, it enabled uh, Mike to build Fuseware into a major brand in social media analytics to the extent that completely independently from the art cafe, uh, Mike was approached by Oresti for Ornico to acquire Fuseware. Oh my goodness. So it kind of came full circle. And your Twitter handle is also art, isn't it? Art 2G. What is your, your Twitter handle? Art 2G, which is inspired by Art 2D from Star Wars. Okay, okay, okay. I get that. Interesting. So um, I'm a big R2-D2 fan. I'm a big fan of all the droids in, in uh, Star Wars. Um, I do think that the first Star Wars movie w was not as wonderful as a lot of people make it out to be. In fact, I had to see it the second time before I really appreciated it. The first time it seemed like pretty weak science fiction. Yeah. From a number of uh, points of view. And if you look at it critically, without the whole culture of Star Wars, Star Wars around it, you realize that actually it wasn't such an amazing movie, but it was iconic and it was archetypal and it had yeah. all the elements that were necessary for a modern fairy tale, which is yeah. really what Star Wars is. Yeah. Certainly the first three uh, movies. And when I talk about the first three, I'm talking about episodes four, five, and six. Mm. That was the core Star Wars uh, story and it was a fairy tale. Um, set in space. <laughs> That's interesting because I actually, I'm just, um, we, we're steering off a bit, but I mean, when, uh, with Star Wars, there's actually such a magical story behind how the movie came about mm. and the struggle, like mm. how many mm. times it, it was never taken up. And eventually it was, and how a huge success was made out of it. And that's exactly, I mean, if just to bring it back to social media, I mean, for those that, um, that saw the opportunity with social media and went for it and started it, I mean, look at the Kardashians. I know we, uh, everybody goes, no, 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 no. But I'd I mean, like that. <laughs> I love the Kardashians. I'm not going to lie. I do. I do. I do. I get a lot of beauty tips from them. <laughs> you. <laughs> 
Anyway, so, um, but I think we cannot discard the fact that they are um, exceptional in, in, um, in influences. I mean, what if you look at Kylie Jenner, she would just show Nivea men's shaving cream and then it will sell out in the whole of America. Um, she just needs to do one post. The, the power of social media. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think that's why also your, your report is so insightful because it really gives you an understanding as to where you need to focus and where you need to improve because there's a few very interesting things I picked up in your report, which I would love to unpack with you. Um, the first thing is, um, something I think we all ask, but the, the question is, is it in the data? So we've, we've seen for the last um, year in the headlines, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, the Facebook shares went down. Elections were manipulated by social media. Um, a, a huge democracy problem. Then the recent data leak for over 500 million users. Then there's the Instagram founders that resigned. Um, it just seems that there's a, this big, one big storm, and it's an avalanche of incidents. Now, the things that I would like to understand is it something that we as, as, as social media users should be concerned about? Does this have any um, impact on consumer usage? And does it impact client spend? Yes, no, yes, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so we should be concerned because this is where we curate our lives these days. Just as a matter of background and context, when I talk about the strength and benefits of social media, I obviously always balance that against the negatives as well. And one of the negatives is that people go onto Facebook and think that is their friend's entire lives mm. and they measure themselves against their friend's lives and they obviously come up very short and it cre creates massive depression. In fact, people have been known to suffer from uh, various depression-related illnesses directly as a result of what you might call social media envy. What people have to understand is that social media is a curated environment. The average person is not going to put their best and their worst on social media. Mm. There are certain not-so-average people who do share all their greatest traumas, and I have to switch off from that. Mm. It's too much. If you, if, if you take any individual in the street and you ask them to share their bad things every day with you, uh, you'd want to run away. Mm. And that's what some people do on social media. So the average person just shares their best mm -hmm. on social media. And when you see only the best, you think people are having these amazing lives. But everyone struggles. Everyone has the uh, daily torture of the rubbish one has to deal with mm. um, in life. So one has to see social media from that uh, point of view as well, from the curation a point of view and or the idea that it is a curated environment. So do people have to be worried? Yes, because that is where they're living their lives. Mm. And when things go wrong, it means it's going to have an effect on how uh, they live their lives or rather where they live their lives. It's like something going wrong in your own home. Facebook is almost a second home, a virtual home. It's like having your home broken into, for example. Mm. And if you feel a direct effect of that, if your account gets hacked, it is like being burgled. Mm. You feel violated mm. as a result of it. And often you've got to go through 
complex legal uh, procedures to uh, get your life back in order. Mm. Um, so it can be very traumatic. If I might just add to that, um, it's that unintended flow of data as well. Um, you know, constantly sharing, but also sharing without knowing what you're sharing when you're not active on, on social media. Yeah. If you look what happened um, with Striata, is it Striata? That app and unveiled a secret base camp when the people were training around and they were tracking their training. It un- unveiled Strava. this. Is, Strava. is it Strava? Oh, forgive me. <laughs> forgive me. But you know Michael how. Michael Wright to find out. Oh my gosh. Is going to I'm like, Striata, what? Anyway, we're going we're gonna to move on. <laughs> <laughs> move on. But uh, the Strava app. Sorry. Apologies for that. Um, but I mean, that, that was a perfect example of this unintended flow of data when. Um, you know, you you do get hacked, and information are shared, and um, that could be um, uh, you know harmful. Exactly. So let's say your home gets uh, burgled. Not only do you have to deal with the trauma and possibly trauma counselling as well, but you also have to deal with the police and with legal proceedings and with getting your stuff back. And it's something similar if you get hacked in social media. There's so much that you have to deal with then. So. The social networks themselves have a massive responsibility to protect mm. us mm. from that. In the same way that the police have a responsibility to protect us from crime, they don't always meet that responsibility, but we also take some of that responsibility on ourselves. Mm. We try to make sure our homes are secure and so on. But we can't do that on social media. The networks themselves are obliged to do that for us. Yeah. And when they're not doing it, they're falling down on their job and their responsibility and they're violating the trust of their users. Yeah. And the one thing, the one thing that is fundamental to any social network and its long-term survival is the trust of its users. So that's where the likes of Facebook and Twitter have to be very careful that they protect us and that they ensure that our rights aren't violated. And I'm afraid they fall down badly on that job. I get quite angry about it when I go into the detail of it. So take fake news, for example. Mm. Facebook have made a big deal out of the fact that they now have news checkers. They've actually appointed two bodies in South Africa, Africa Check and AFP, Mm. to help them with verifying and validating uh, news stories that are shared on their platform when people lodge complaints, But which is great. It's a wonderful step in the right direction. But then you won't believe what happened next. What happened next is that when fake news does get identified, they don't pull it from the platform, Mm-mm. they don't block it, Mm-mm. they downrate it so that it appears lower in people's news feeds. <laughs> Come on. I mean, That's not protecting just... your, your users. No. Facebook, no. wake up. You have to earn our trust and you're losing it by allowing fake news when you know it's fake news to appear on your platform. I don't know if you, you saw the, the investigation by Carte Blanche on Facebook when they went into the UK offices undercover on the content. There was a, a story about child abuse and they refused to remove the story because it was getting so much traction and so much attention. And it's the trauma of that child being exposed over mm. and over and over exactly. to the abuse that's happening to that child. And it's not being removed. It's sensitive abuse, but they say, no, keep it there because, you know, it, it's got a lot of traction behind it. I mean, it's, it's concerning. And I think that there's a really a lack of regulation. I don't think it's, it's regulation that's needed because regulation can't keep up with changes in te- technology. No, that's true. It's responsibility that's needed. Google is the other example. The giant, where Facebook is the giant organization that 
controls almost all of social media and instant messaging. Google is a giant corporation that controls almost all of search mm. in, in the world. And between them, they are gobb gobbling up the advertising revenue of the world. And consequently, they are undermining the traditional uh, media, which ironically feeds a lot of their mm. uh, content. But thanks to those two organizations, a lot of traditional media won't be able to survive because there isn't enough advertising spend available uh, to them. So there already uh, you have a fundamental issue. But when you look at the extent to which they are willing to compromise their ethos in order to generate mm. that revenue, that's when it becomes a real concern. Mm. The first issue you could still argue is a business issue. Of course, they're going to go for as much revenue as they can. Of course, they're going to try to dominate industries. That's how business works. That's how capitalism certainly uh, works. But this is unfettered capitalism, and capitalism does need fetters to avoid the abuse of consumers who are making that capitalism possible. So in Google's case in particular, you had this expose recently on News24, which wasn't a new story, but it was the first time it had been extensively unwrapped. It was the extent to which advertising being placed by major corporations in South Africa was appearing alongside undesirable content Correct. and fake news sites and the like, and the extent to which Google was not being active enough in preventing the ads from appearing on those sites. So that is a classic example of where the revenue is far more important to them than the ethos of how they earn that revenue. Mm. So they play innocent, as do Facebook, but the reality is the reason they keep that content there. And the reason they don't more actively prevent ads from appearing alongside that content is that it allows them to generate far more revenue, mm. it allows them to accelerate the revenue and meet those growth targets, those absurd growth targets that Wall Street collaborates with mm. American tech companies in setting and meeting. Mm. I mean, if you even look at, um, you know, at P&G, when Mark Pritchett um, an announced um, early on this year, I think it was about nine, nine, ten months ago, when he's he ordered um, um, a cleanup of digital transparency and that the company was beginning to see some signs that it's working. Um, you know, they were forcing tech companies to, to, to change the game. And, you know, um, one of my clients um, that works for a big global brand, uh, he says, reach is not good enough for me. Don't tell me I've reached 100,000 people in a post. Did, what, how, do I, how do I know? that people have seen my ad and, and it becomes a debatable thing. Mm, and that's mm. why, you know, there's a, it, 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 it's like we, you need to somewhere draw the line in the sand. Yeah, reach is a great fiction. We did a study with a company called Continuon, which is a platform, rather a platform called Continuon, which is owned by a company called Platinum Seed. They are partners, one of our partners in our big new online retail study that we're launching next week, in fact. But um, their continuum platform measures influence and influences and where influence has the biggest impact and how it has the biggest impact. And what they've come up with is the discovery that reach is actually not that powerful in terms of brand awareness and also return on investment for brands. What's important is relevance, but also the velocity of conversation, and that's a new term that they've 
come up with and that we presented in a report we did for them. The velocity of conversation means the extent to which the conversation around a topic continues after the post has gone up, after it's been shared by a supposed influencer, mm. etc. And you see where the big celebs who, for example, tweet about something that's not germane to what they necessarily do, you see that there's a big bang when they first tweet it, massive retweets and likes and comments, and then it's dead. Mm. So it lasts, say, 24 hours, where someone with real influence will actually start a conversation going, mm. and that conversation will build up over time. Mm. And that's what's referred to as the velocity of conversation. So with big celebs, the velocity is very low. With real influences, and there might be unknown people who have influence within their particular niche or area of interest, you have a far greater velocity of conversation. And I like that. that just makes so much more sense than something called reach, because reach is just how much bang you got for your buck yeah. in the first 10 minutes or 24 hours. Yeah. As a vanity metric. Exactly. For me, it's more like I think they, it's peacocking in, in some shape or form. <laughs> One thing that fascinated me in, in your report was you, you, you were talking about live streaming. Some of the conversations that were happening um, in Cape Town as well as in Johannesburg at the conference when you announced all of these stats was from the youth, for example, where they believe that brands need to invest in younger copywriters. Brands overproduce their social media content, especially video that makes it less authentic. Content um, is too boring and there's too much clutter, so it's not relevant. And brands are trying to be cool when they appear creepy. This is now, you know, like from, from research that we done prior to, 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 the, to this event, as well as things that were coming up during the event. Do you think that live streaming might be too much of a risky territory for brands? They feel out of control. There's, there's two issues there. Live streaming is risky because you can't control it. Mm. But the other is that you're forcing people back into the old scheduled TV paradigm because live streaming means that you have to tune in at, at a particular time, which is fine if it's an event that is happening at a particular time. But live streaming for its own sake, mm. I think, is a very uh, bad idea. Uh, people enjoy the concept of curating their own experiences and their own entertainment and their own streaming. That's why Spotify and Netflix are so massively successful because it takes control away from the schedulers and the programmers and puts mm. it into the hands, well, to some extent of the platforms, but mostly the consumer of the platform. The consumer decides what their schedule of viewing is and live streaming to me overturns that again. Mm. So streaming video, yes. Streaming events, yes. But live streaming as a marketing tool, I yeah. see that as retrogressive. Yeah, and it could be very, um, in, you know, invasive as well. Um, but I also think something that really resonated with me is this whole thing of overproduced content and, and you know, to try and be more authentic. When you do overproduce your content, you, you're, not, you're not connecting with your audiences, which is also a, a huge challenge with social media because one big problem um, that, that we've identified is that there's all this clutter on social media and it's boring it's not interesting it's not resonating and it's not relevant so you get pushed all of these ads towards you and it's not even an interesting story yes here and there you might have something that appeals to you and go oh that's cool i like that but i do think that um 
not enough effort is put into into understanding what they want to communicate, the data behind it, is it the relevant message, and then you know lather it with the right type of creativity to to resonate with different groups of people rather than the spray and pray approach. I think those are standard issues in marketing and advertising generally. Mm. And it really does come down to what you said earlier, authenticity. Mm. I think authenticity has to be at the heart of it. So it doesn't really matter whether you've overproduced or underproduced or whether you're trying to do it rough and ready or trying trying to do it really slick. You still have to ensure that at the heart of it is that authenticity. So if you're using a celebrity endorser, make sure that the celeb has authenticity within that environment or for that message, that it's not just the old BlackBerry 10 launch where Alicia Keys is unveiled as the new creative director (laughs) of BlackBerry and she tweets from an iPhone to say how excited (laughs) she is about this role. That's not authenticity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. That is a, a, a true reality. And I think also, um, I was giving it some thought this morning, you know, influencers are great, but it's a huge problem when you have an influencer um, that endorses more than one type of product in a lifetime. You know, it, it like, okay, I know you don't like the Kardashians, but, but Kardashians were big Blackberry fans. Like in the beginning when they started, they were all about BlackBerry. Everyone was a big BlackBerry fan. But they transitioned. Yes, exactly. And they transitioned to iPhone, which is fine. And and then this whole tribe starts following them. But then there's a difference when somebody says, oh, you have to open an APSA account because of Africanacity. And then six months later, oh, my gosh, you have to open an Investec account. Um, this is because, you know, and then every, every now and then there's a different type of, you know, type of thing that seems to be connected. And then people don't really believe what they have to say on influencers. I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's a great platform, but yeah, I think that brands need to really know what they want to get out of it. Absolutely. If you're there because other people are there, you're there for the wrong reason. The result of going into social media just because you feel you have to be there is that your content won't have that authenticity Mm. and it also won't be necessarily relevant Mm. to your own customers, let alone to the social media uh, customer. I think also brands have to be very careful how they use celebs, endorsers or influencers. I think that's where the problem really comes in, the examples that we've just been talking about. If there is a more engaging way and authentic way of engaging for the influencer and the brand, then the audience is going to take it more seriously or going to take it in more enthusiastically. Mm. So I won't deny I've been asked from time to time to take part in some kind of influencer campaign. And I've looked at these and I've said, okay, if it's something that aligns with what I would say, then I'm willing to say something, Mm. but you can't tell me what you say. Mm. I need to look at it and see how this aligns with what I would normally be talking about. And do I believe in this message? Mm. If I can't believe in the message, then I can't possibly take part in that particular campaign. But there have been a few campaigns where it's been what you might call for the greater good Mm. and where it was a no-brainer to take uh, part in it. So if it works for me, and it works for my audience, then it works for the brand. And that's the right approach to have. And I think, I think that's where the, where, where the, the gray line is because 
brands tend to say, this is exactly how you have to say it, how you have to produce it. And it's not authentic to their brands. And I think that's where the, the, that's they, also, that's the, also why the, I don't get too many of those engagements. <laughs> <laughs> that dance that doesn't swing so well. Uh, another thing um, that really resonates with me, one of the interesting insights is that people are not really investing in, in the right skills. Take us through the report, what you found there. We surveyed, among other things, this is with Ornico in particular. So what Ornico brings to the party is that they've got this massive database of customers in the marketing world. So they're able to get direct contact with the big brands in South Africa and get them to participate in an industry survey. So we don't just look at what's happening on the social platforms and how many users there are and what growth has been, but also how brands are using the social platforms. And one of the key questions we ask them is how effective they are in using social networks. And what's fascinating there is that there's a direct relationship between the extent to which one would assume that people working on the account or for the brand are using a social network and how effective they are in the utilization of that social uh, network. So, for example, uh, when you ask the big brands, how effective are you in using Facebook? then you find that they are very effective. And the reason for that is because everyone working for the brand and on the account mm. is using Facebook. Mm. When you ask them about uh, Twitter, they're far less effective. And when you ask them about Instagram, they're least effective because very few of the people working in that organization are, in fact, on Instagram. Mm. So there's a correlation between those two. Interesting. So that's, that's the first uh, thing. But when we asked them if they believe that they have the skills for social media, we've actually seen a shift in the past year. We've seen fewer brands saying that they have the right skills this year than we saw last year. And the reason for that is that the platforms themselves have evolved, but the skill sets within the big brands have remained the same. So they haven't moved with the times. And as a result, as a result of that, they're conscious of the fact that they are not quite ready as they might have been a year ago for what's happening in social media. And then we asked them what they're going to do about it in 2019, and a massive 78% said that they are investing in training their current people. Now, when we asked the same question last year, only 60% said they were investing in training. Oh, wow. So that shows very directly the relationship between awareness of not having enough skills mm. and the intention of investing more in training. So 2019 is going to be a year of upskilling social media in the big <laughs> brands. No, but that's, that, that's great news because you know what? Things have changed so much in the past year that it's absolutely essential. And I, I, you've got such a valid point there. Like if you look at um, Instagram, I think everybody focuses on Facebook. And um, Facebook, when you go for the, the various training sessions, it's usually 70% about Facebook and then a little bit about Twitter, a little bit about Instagram. And I think more focus needs to be around Correct. also building the right content that focuses on one specific channel. Correct. And I think it's also about comfort with the channel. So because they're comfortable with it, they push the spend to that channel. Mm. They are loath to move out of their comfort zone. But then I have to say that has always been the problem in the advertising industry. I remember, if I may blow a small trumpet, <laughs> in 2002, I was a judge in the 
Cyber Lions, which is the online oh category my. of the Cannes International Advertising Festival. Dream come true? <laughs> it was. It was, <laughs> it was a true bucket list event. And um, it was uh, one of the great experiences of my life taking part in that. But I brought back the learnings to South Africa because obviously I then had also sight of all the South African entries into the Cyber Lions and I could see the dramatic difference in quality and creativity um, and the mindset between the South African entries and uh, the global ones. So when I came back, I gave a, a talk around my learnings and gave examples and contrasted those with the South African ones. But there was so little interest really? in learning how to enhance the, um, let's say, the level of online advertising or digital advertising mm. at that stage because it was so far out of the comfort zone of the ad industry of the time, which was still very much focused on traditional advertising. And social media was very much an outlier. It was something that the they let the kids dabble with. Mm. It certainly wasn't a significant contribution to revenue. Now everything has changed. It's tilted completely. But the industry itself mm. remains stuck in its comfort zone. Whether that comfort zone is Facebook today rather mm. than tr traditional print advertising okay. in 2002, it's an industry that has great difficulty moving out of its comfort zone and it has to learn, mm. especially in this fast-evolving digital space. The ad industry has to learn how to operate outside its comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is within the industry, you'll also notice that the corporates are getting a lot of training, more training than the actual advertising agencies. So the, they're becoming more powerful and they're taking things within mm -hmm. in-house, which changes the dynamics exactly. completely. Messaging is growing and messaging is, is a very powerful thing here in South Africa. I just wanted to, to find out in your views, how should brands join in? It's a very difficult area for a brand, instant messaging and advertising, because the primary benefit of instant messaging for the individual is that it's their own private space and most of their conversations are private. Suddenly here comes a brand and intrudes in that conversation. Very ugly for the consumer. Mm. So the brand has to do it in a way that makes sense to the consumer, that's not intrusive, that's natural and that's also invited. So there has to be a massive level of opt-in as well. Also, the platforms themselves should be far more responsive to the concerns of brands who want their communication with consumers to be unobtrusive and to make sense. So we made a small experiment with Facebook ads going onto Messenger, and it was a disaster. Luckily, it is a very small campaign, and we also cut it very quickly when we started seeing the responses coming back because people were seeing on instant messenger communication that didn't align with how we thought our message would be exposed. Not because the message itself was distorted, mm. but because the audience for the message was distorted from what we thought the audience yeah. would be. Yeah. Typical problem. Ex exactly. It's a typical exactly. problem. Exactly. But it was a, it was just an experiment to see what's the impact. Mm. And the first two responses we got from Messenger were clear evidence that there was something <laughs> wrong here. Luckily, we were watching it closely. A lot of brands don't watch. Yeah, but what I will say is that instant messaging is a very, very powerful two-way communications tool and a very powerful way of getting feedback from consumers. And we've embarked on 
a strategy of using Facebook Messenger as a research uh, tool because the reach that it provides is something that was hitherto impossible from both a budget point of view and from a reach point of view in terms of something as population representative. Mm, mm. So it's been revolutionary for us. Amazing. Well, we really loved having you here. In tradition, we are going to play a 60-second game. We're going to ask you 10 questions. Uh, In 60 seconds, 10 questions, and you have to answer them as quickly as possible. On your marks, get set, go. What's something people don't worry about but really should? Single malt whiskey. What is some insider knowledge you know in your line of work that we don't? You can get single malt whiskey at very low prices that are as good, that is as good as really expensive single malt whiskey. <laughs> what is the most embarrassing accidental SMS or WhatsApp message you've ever sent to someone? Admitting that I drank a cheap blended whiskey. <laughs> what's, what's a holiday that doesn't exist that you would like to create? Mar- a weekend on Mars. Would you rather be a hobbit or an elf? For 24 hours. A hobbit. Big feet. How much would you pay a hacker threatening to release your browsing history to your friends and family? I'll set my own hackers on them. What movie completely changes its plot when you change one letter in its title? Star Wars. <laughs> would you rather shoot spaghetti out of your fingers or sneeze meatballs? <laughs> thank goodness the buzzer went before I tried that. <laughs> Arthur, thank you so much for joining us today. It was so much fun. And we will share this to all of the podcast platforms and to our loyal audiences. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope you guys learned a lot. And if you want to get your hands on the full report, you can contact Arthur directly and you can email him at Arthur at worldwideworks with an X dot com. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thank you, Carmen. Cheers. You've been listening to The Carmen Murray Show, another solid gold podcast. For show notes and more episodes, visit solidgoldstudios.co.za slash Carmen Murray.